The following message is by Pastor Eric Ludi. More information about the church at Ellerslie is available at www.ellerslie.com. I've had uh, one congregant, how would you like to be known as a congregant, uh, that has uh, particularly made mention of the fact that um, <clears throat> he keeps expecting when he comes to church uh, that there will be a message that will be a little more lighthearted and uh, he can come away feeling good about himself uh, as opposed to convicted. Uh, and uh, I, I think I've given him fair warning that that may never happen. Uh, however, <clears throat> this is a f- pretty friendly message, and I don't like admitting that, but uh, this, is, this is a message with a big smile on its face, and you know, I don't want you to take full advantage of that and expect this every week. Uh, but... Uh, Could we flash up the title of this one so you guys can get a big smile with me? Uh, The Miracle of Adoption. Uh, It's neat because uh, this next, well, it's the Monday after uh, this one. So eight days from now is uh, Little Dubber Doo, who's also known as Kipling Joel Anthony Ludi. It's his uh, second birthday. He's turning two. Uh, And uh, Little Dubber Doo, I call him Dubber Dewey. Uh, Some people call him Dub. I noticed at the kiddo night uh, the other night, uh, I signed him in his dub, and they still put Kip on his name tag. I'm not exactly sure who's responsible for that, but every time he's come to kiddo night, he gets Kip on his name tag. So there's someone here who's like, no, we're going to maintain his identity as Kip. We're going to fight for that. Uh, so, uh, but to me, he's dub. So if I refer to him as dub, that's exactly what he is. Uh, and he, he is a dub. And that, that name came because Harper, uh, when Dubber was born, uh, he, she couldn't say uh, brother, and she was she was trying to say baby brother, and instead it came out baby dubber, and so he became dubber, and then dubber do and dubber dewey and dub, you know, and all the the different iterations. Uh, but when you start dealing with adoption, it is something that touches each of us at some level. It is a central theme in the gospel as well. When I go through the gospel, the adoption as sons and daughters of the king is actually one of the critical points of understanding that this isn't some bonus version for some Christians. Like, well, and then there's the Christians that actually get adopted. One of the works of Jesus Christ through his shed blood is adoption. And so Christianity involves this as one of its basic tenant points this, like I said, this isn't something you grow up into and maybe after 20 years of being a Christian, suddenly it's like you realize, oh, and I can now be adopted. That you have to earn your way or somehow prove enough uh, of the substance of Christianity, enough righteousness in your life where then you can eventually come before the king and say, I think I have enough now. Is th- am I worthy to be adopted? The privilege of being adopted by the God of the universe Now, most of us, if we've grown up in Christianity, that doesn't necessarily stand out to us because we've always known it. When we were young, we were told that we were adopted, and there was a spirit that God has given us that cries out, Abba, Father. And we've grown up around this, and as a result, it doesn't stand out, and it isn't highlighted in our life. There are certain things in our life that are true, and we've believed them all along, but God wants to get out of his big yellow highlighter pen and and scratch them for us, and just sort of cover them for us, not scratch them out, but, you know, cover them with that highlighter pen to say, do you see this? Do you understand what this means? This will change your life. 
I've given the illustration oftentimes when I talk about fatherhood of John F. Kennedy in the Oval Office with, uh, he's, with all these diplomats and, and key officials of state, and they're making this enormous decision uh, that affects international uh, policy. And underneath the, the desk, the president's desk, is little son John Jr., or Johnny. And he's zooming around a truck. He has no idea what he is involved in. He is in one of the most critical moments, and he's a part of it. He's a participant in one of the most critical moments in all of history. He doesn't even realize it, but he's invited in to be at the feet of the king of America in that sense. And even though he doesn't have comprehension fully of his position, because he is a son, he is allowed in. The benefits of a son or a daughter are different than the benefits of someone that is outside the family. Now, as Christians, we want to give love and charity to everyone, mercy and kindness to everyone, but there is a responsibility in the biblical mandate for a father and a mother to take care of their own, to defend their own. You know that if my children are in need, in a desperate situation, danger is, is striking them, do you know that as a father, it is my not oblig- just obligation, but privilege to know ahead of time that it is worthwhile for me to spend my body and my blood to defend them and that God would smile upon that. Yeah, I just gave up my life. And it would be worth it in the economy of heaven to defend my children, to defend it, to, to, to put my chest as the one that receives the bullets, if you will, is actually something that heaven would smile at, and I know that ahead of time. In other words, it's the privilege of a son and a daughter to have the protection of a parent. It's an amazing thing. Also, the provision. My children don't ponder if they're going to have food. They know that they have parents, and their parents take that burden upon themselves. But if you don't have a parent, then you don't necessarily have the same confidence that you are going to have food the next day because you are responsible for it yourself. And so if you're a five-year-old wandering the streets of Port-au-Prince, Haiti, it's likely you may not have food the next day. And so the benefits of being a child, of being a son or a daughter, are tremendous. You have that assurance of protection, provision. You have love. If you scrape your knee... Did you know that your cry is actually heard? That someone cares and you know that someone cares? You know, we take it for granted, maybe, that when we scuff up our knee that we know that someone cares. There are so few people, I'm sorry, so many people in this world that when they cry out in pain, no one cares. Now, in reality, we know that God does care. They don't know that which is one of the reasons we must introduce them to the miracle of adoption. In my, Leslie and I have adopted two of our children. And uh, Deborah Dew, that I was, I was mentioning, is going to turn two in eight days, uh, is the biological son of uh, Bex, who's sitting right out there. Hey, Bex. Uh, raise your hand so everyone can appreciate you. And uh, there's a couple things about adoption that scare people. Okay. Now, it's interesting. When they've done studies on Americans in the issue of adoption, 
You know that 80% of couples at one point or time in another, at one point in time or another, that sounds funny. What's wrong with my sentence? They have considered adoption. 80% have seriously considered adoption at one point in time. That's a, that's a huge percentage. And less than, I think it was less than half of 1% actually pursue it. That shows you that there's this blockade. In other words, people say, you know what? Maybe we should consider this. This really could be a good thing that we could actually reach out and help a child that doesn't have that protection, that doesn't have that provision, that doesn't have that sense of someone caring for them, someone to train them up in the truth. At least that's the Christian parent mentality. But, but then there's this blockade that stands in the way. It's, it's a mountain of impossibility or it's a mountain of fear or concern because, hey, I mean... If you do that, then these things happen. Let me, let's go through a few of them. There's a fear that if you were to adopt, you wouldn't feel the same for your adopted child as you would for your biological children. I am here to tell you, as a matter of fact and experience, that when you adopt, you see no difference between your biological and your adopted children. None. There is no difference in my heart whatsoever. In fact, my biological children could be a little concerned saying, hey, are you favoring the adopted? I love them all. I care deeply for them all, and they're mine. I treat them. I would gladly give up my life for any one of my four children without hesitation. It's not like, hmm, yeah, well, you're adopted. There's no distinguishing factor in my mind as a father. I want you to realize that should not be a trip-up point. Financial, it's expensive to adopt. Here's one thing I can tell you about adoption. God loves it. If God is moving you forward in adoption, he has all the resources you need already predetermined to allot to your situation. You know, Harper's adoption was $27,000. That is a lot of money. And here's the amazing truth about it. About two weeks in, we had to have half of it down so that the process with Korea could move forward. 15,000, this is, I know, more than half, but $15,535. We needed to have, and I think it was two to three weeks. And so <clears throat> that's a very steep thing. When we had, that's not $3, that's zero to put towards it. It's not like we didn't have money, but we had money to pay our bills. We had money to buy food. We didn't have money to put towards this. None to put towards it. In that two to three week period, $15,500 came in and when we had gone to the adoption agency, this was from all over the country. People were concerned. People were interested. The body of Christ was moved. This topic moves people. We desire to do something practically to help little children. Oftentimes, we don't know what to do. Adoption moves people. It really does. And so on that day that we needed to write that check to get this whole process moving forward, we had $15,500. Remember the total I said I needed? $15,535. God came up $35 short. I come home from uh, writing the check. Didn't care about the $35. Meant nothing to me, to be honest. I mean, that's fine. I can come up with $35. But this is how interested God is in adoption and making it clear that when you step forward, he will supply. 
we had someone who was watching Hudson at the house, uh, and her name was uh, Patricia. And uh, so Leslie was writing out a check to Patricia. And Patricia said, uh, no, I want you to put that towards the Harper Fund. And it was $35. In other words, God in his way, you know, with a little smile on his face says, do you see? Do you see that this is my work? My work in you. I remember when this, it, it began with uh, Bex, and we began to build a relationship, and, Le- and Bex was pregnant, and the whole story was unfolding. I remember praying. You know, I, at that point, we had two little kids. Uh, I think, I don't know what the ages were, two and one. No, three and one. Okay, that's, that's plenty. Okay, you could keep yourself very busy with a three and one-year-old. And yet there was this desire. It was a weird God-implanted desire. It was like this little boy inside of Bex that I would cry out to God on his behalf. And I cared deeply for this little boy. There's a lot of people that are pregnant out there. There's a lot of kids. And for some reason, God said, this one. And we began to wrestle for this little life. And God gave us a heart for this little boy. That is supernatural. It's all I can say. Now, here's the other thing that could scare you. An open adoption? Whoa. First of all, I hadn't even really heard of open adoptions. Didn't even know that that was a possibility. And it is somewhat of a new concept. We have an open adoption. I mean, there's Bex sitting here right here. Dub, you know, she carries around Dub. She could run off with Dub and say, mine! Uh, And it is a beautiful relationship. There is a process that God is born within us. Bex will forever be a part of our life. It's like our family has one more. Uh, So it wasn't just Dub or Do. It was actually, I was going to say Bexy do, but uh, that was sort of awkward. Uh, so I didn't say it. Uh, <laughs> but adoption is absolutely beautiful. You want to see the romance of heaven come to earth? Start reaching out to little vulnerable children. Now, here's the funny thing. I call it romance. It's not always romance with diaper smells and, you know, all the different dramas that come uh, in, because foolishness is bound up in the heart of a child, and, you know, when you're raising it, you, it's not always what you would call romance. But there is an overall haze of romance and beauty that is found in doing the work of God and allowing the, the heart of God to be cultivated in you for the ones that he loves. Because to God, we have our little family, And our little family has our affections and it has our best and we will take care of our family. In my will, before Hudson was even born, I remember uh, drafting up a will. It was the first will Leslie and I I had ever made. And we drafted this will and I bequeathed everything to my son whom I hadn't even met. All of it going to a little boy that's unborn. Didn't have a name for him. I think he was known as Unborn Baby Ludi in the will. And... The fact that a father or a mother would be able to gift that to their biological children makes sense at a certain level to us, even though it's still extreme. You haven't even met the child and you're willing to take all of your life's work invested in them. How much more so a child that isn't of biological line that you would take them and say, it's all yours. It's all yours. Now there's something about that that isn't as natural Because the natural thing is we take care of our own. But here's the thing that Christianity does in the arena of adoption. It expands our family. And God says, this is part of my family. 
and you are my child, and I want you to think kingdom family and not just your own biological family. He has this reason through spirit and not through just biological bloodline and pedigree. And it radically alters the church of Jesus Christ when we think that way. We have a lot of adopted children just in this little church. There's a heart that God has cultivated. It's not just here, but it's all through his church right now in this arena. There's a sensitivity. And God's saying, do you see it? These are my children. And my heart is beating for them. Okay? So that's just a foundation. I'd like to go into the gospel understanding of adoption. Romans 8.15, For ye have not received the spirit of bondage again to fear, but ye have received the spirit of adoption, whereby we cry, Abba, Father. There's two things that are contrasted here. One is a spirit of bondage again to fear. I want you to realize this is not what you have received from God. If any of you are struggling with fear, the sense of bondage in your life, I want you to realize that that comes from your natural-born father. Uh, It does not come from your new father. Your new father gives you the contrast to that, which is the opposite of fear. Children who are living in a safe and secure home do not live in the bondage of fear. They live with the confidence in their father and their mother to provide for them, to take care of them. We have been delivered from this system of the world which says it's all on your shoulders. You must solve life's dilemmas too. The spirit of the father. And we are grafted into his bloodline. And we become part of his family. And now suddenly we have a security, a peace within, knowing that our God takes care of us. And he says the rest of the world seeks after what they're going to wear, how they're going to eat, and where they're going to live, what kind of shelter they're going to have. But I tell you, you're my children Seek after me, and you will know, you'll be fully confident that I will take care of you. Weothesea. This means adoption in the Greek. The legal process by which a man might bring into his family and endow with the status and privileges of a son, one who was not by nature his son or of his kindred. Just adoption. There's no surprising definition there. Pictures of adoption in the Old Testament. I'm just going to go through this real quick just to see throughout the Bible. But Moses, sort of strange to think about it, but Moses was adopted. Interesting thing about Moses, I'll just read the scripture real quick. And the child grew, speaking of Moses, and she brought him unto Pharaoh's daughter and he became her son. And she called his name Moses and she said, because I drew him out of the water. One of the principles in the Old Testament, because the Old Testament sets a foundation for the new. And the Old Testament doesn't talk about adoption. It demonstrates adoption. And then in the New Testament, Paul refers to what the Jews had as the adoption. So adoption is in the Old Testament, even though it's not necessarily talked about in the way that we would expect when we're doing a word study. Well, where's the word adoption? You're not stumbling across it in the Old Testament. However, the concept is there, just like Pentecost. Pentecost is in the Old Testament. It was a celebration of, uh, of the wheat harvest. It's in the Old Testament, but it was never called that. And so we think it's a brand new thing, but it was a celebration of the giving of the law. But in the New Testament, it's a celebration of the giving of the Spirit. There's a contrast. It's a new covenant. And we have the Spirit of the Father. It's not just grafting into a pedigree. It's not that you have to call yourself by race an Israelite. 
You call yourself by spirit a Christian. We are grafted into the Israelite line through a different means. It's through spirit and not through biological lines. And Esther was adopted. And he, Mordecai, brought up Hadassah. That's the other name. That's the Hebrew name for Esther. That is Esther, his uncle's daughter. For she had neither father nor mother, and the maid was fair and beautiful, whom Mordecai, when her father and mother were dead, took for his own daughter. So we have some incredible pictures of adoption. I love the picture. If you think about adoption and you, you use the story of Esther and Moses, both of them are profound. I mean, think about Moses. Moses is a slave. He was a born Israelite. And in Israel, he was part. I mean, what is it? 390 years into their slavery when he was born. He is born a slave in Egypt. And yet he is adopted and he is freed and liberated from his slavery. Okay, that's one of the pictures in the Old Testament. Then you have Hadassah or Esther. She is adopted by Mordecai, who is the champion for Israel, by the way. And she is leveraged and used in this position of strength with the help and the, and the strength of her adoptive father to actually turn the world upside down to rescue the people of God. It's, it's just an incredible picture. The adoption. And so remember how I said that Paul in the New Testament refers to what the Jews had as the adoption. He uses that word. Okay, the word is weothesia. Uh, weothesia, technically. I had this right too. I was gonna get the pronunciation of that right and you guys were gonna forget that I've mispronounced words in the past. Weothesia. So he refers to that, that that's what the Jews had. So even though it's not mentioned in the Old Testament, and it, God doesn't come out and say, yes, they have the weothesia, Paul says in the New Testament, he says, you see what they had? That's the weothesia. They have the adoption. The Gentiles don't. The Gentiles are not of natural order and birth. So in Romans 9, 4, this is where it says it. It says, who are Israelites to whom pertaineth the adoption? and the glory, and the covenants, and the giving of the law, and the service of God, and the promises. That's quite the list. So what do the Israelites have in their possession? They have the adoption, they have the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the service of God, the promises, the fathers, and the race of the incarnation. In other words, it was their race that was chosen to house God. They were the race of the incarnation. God literally took on their race, their skin color, their culture. Okay, that's something to brag about. If you're a Jew, you have all that. That is part of your heritage. That is part of what you naturally have, even by birth. However, the interesting thing about adoption in the New Testament is we see that even though the Jews had this incredible spread, what a basis of confidence and strength. Our father is Abraham. When Jesus came, he supplied something that that basically separated sheep from goats. It's like you could have all this pedigree, but you want to know who my true sons are. They're the ones born of faith. The adoption. Key references in the Old Testament. And so if you download my, this sermon this week, you'll get my notes. And so you can go through these. It's really fascinating. The, the adoption is very clear in the Old Testament. God refers to the people of Israel, the people of faith, as his sons and daughters. Over and over again, he talks about the benefits of sonship throughout the Old Testament. You'll see it in these scriptures. It's, it's quite profound, even though the word adoption isn't used. The seven graces of adoption. These are the seven things that are enunciated 
in the New Testament about the privilege of adoption. So we're just gonna lay that foundation. First of all, we are the recipients, if we are adopted into Jesus Christ, we are the recipients of God's amazing love. Let me stop there, just a second. I'm gonna even go back to the seven graces of adoption here as a title. I wanna talk about it very straightforwardly. When I say that this is an element of the gospel, I feel like I need to give a little more clarity even what that means. First of all, you cannot access the throne of God, the pedigree of God, the inheritance of God on your own merit. You don't just wake up one day and say, I heard that Eric spoke about the fact that we are adopted into the bloodline of Jesus Christ, that we are adopted to be sons and daughters of heaven. That doesn't mean that you just come up to heaven and go, hey, I'm one of your sons and daughters. You become a son and a daughter through a process. And just like Dubber Doo or Harper Grace became an adopted child of mine through a process. There was a process of legal transaction that took place, and that's what has to happen in this earth, and ironically, that's what happens in heaven. Because you belong to someone else. Someone else is your father. In the New Testament, it actually describes it in two different ways. One is your father is... Brace yourself for this one. The devil. How do you feel about that? Your father is the devil. If you practice sin, if the fruit of your life is sin, you are evidencing your heritage because what is coming out of you is demonstrating what is going into you. Okay? And you were spawned, you were given life in and through sin. And the power you are exerting is a worldly, earthly, fleshly power, which is demonstrating the fact that your natural father is the devil. Uh, I know that sounds really wonderful. There's another statement in scripture which is talking about a bridegroom and a bride, and it's talking about as long as their marriage, as long as both individuals are alive, then their marriage stands. And if that woman goes off and tries to marry someone else, as long as they both, one one of the two of them are still alive, in other words, they both, if they're both still alive, then it's adultery. It's actually a violation of law. And the same thing, you can't just leave your home and become someone else's son or daughter. You have to have an agreement on both sides. One is receiving and the other one is giving. The amazing thing about what Jesus Christ did is he stripped the paperwork from Satan's hands. He said, they're mine. And we, someone had to die to disengage the legal activity that is binding us. And guess who it was? Jesus died, and we died in him. And so when we identify in his death, that legal bondage that holds us to our father, the devil, that holds us to sin, is actually removed. And we are legally set free to approach a new father and to transact an adoption. That's the reality. So when I start talking about the seven graces of adoption, I better lay a foundation for it. Because it doesn't mean that just because you say, oh, I'm adopted, that you understand what that is or that you've gone through the process. The process is coming to Jesus and saying, what you did on that tree, I need. I need that blood that you shed. Because to get into the throne room of grace, to access the presence of your God and to enter into that process with your Father, you need something outside of your own pedigree. You come to him with your own uh, you know, statements of, you know, I've, I've helped a few old ladies across the street and you know, I, I, I haven't lied this whole last week. 
Uh, you know, I, I've done some good things in my day. You can't access his presence. You don't come in to the presence of a holy God on your own merit any more than you're adopted based on your own merit. Jesus loves you, but you, to get into his presence, need something other than yourself to get in. You need Jesus Christ, and you need him to clothe you in his righteousness, which means he did life the way it is supposed to be done. He lived life the way it ought to be lived. And you have to live life the way it ought to be lived to be able to access the throne room of God. It's called righteousness. He did it. And so he says, clothe yourself in my righteousness. And I did it for you. And then you can come in. And when you come into the presence of God, all of God is made available to you. Jesus' big initial venture was to say, I need to get you in. I need to become the way into my presence. And Jesus is the way. And the reason we come into the presence is so that the presence can come into us. And that's the full picture of Christianity. Christianity isn't just getting into the presence. It's the presence getting into you. And then you going into all the world as a bearer of the likeness of Jesus Christ. The power, the glory, the majesty of Almighty God. And that's the process of adoption. You need to be grafted into his bloodline. You need to become one of his so that you can share in the inheritance so that you can share in the provision so that you can share in the power that only belongs to his children okay now the seven graces of adoption so say that you've come to the tree known as calvary the cross and you've said jesus what you did is for me i recognize that and i need it all you have to do is ask all you have to do is say please lord may it be mine and it's yours It's belief. It's taking. It's saying, I recognize that that was for me, and it's adding it to your account. The term in Romans 6 is reckon it. Reckon it is an accounting term. It's in my ledger. It's mine. And it is. Seven graces of adoption. First, you're the recipients of God's amazing love. You know, this is actually really impressive. We've heard about God's love so much within the church that we have a tough time wrapping our mind around the fact that No, 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 no. You, as an individual, are a recipient of God's amazing love. He's not just all hard on you, kicking you around, saying, you better get this right. He loves you. You know, I discipline my children, there's no doubt about it. But I discipline them because I love them. I think about my children all throughout the day. I'm concerned about my children. I want my children to succeed. My children have my special attention. They are recipients of my love, my care. I watch over them. I watch them at every moment. I'm thinking about them. I want to know how they're doing today. When, I'm, when I went uh, to school you know, and taught here, I come home, I want to know how they did. I want to know every detail of their day. I want to know every detail of all four of my children, including the adopted ones. I care about every intimate detail of their lives. Because I love them, not because I just want to control them and micromanage. I love them. And I delight in hearing the stories, the quotes that they made, the different funny things they did. We're recipients of God's amazing love. In John 17, it says, this is the high priestly prayer. That's what it's typically known as. But Jesus is in the Garden of Gethsemane. And he is praying for us. And I mean that, not just his disciples, for us. Let's read this. Neither pray I for these alone, but for them also which shall believe on me through their word. So 
when he's first talking, he's talking about his disciples. He's saying, but neither do I pray for my disciples alone, but also for them which shall believe on the words of my disciples after I leave. That's you. That's me. Jesus is praying in this situation for you and me. That's exciting to start with. That they all may be one, as thou, Father, art in me and I in thee, that they also may be one in us, that the world may believe that thou hast sent me, and the glory which thou gave me I have given them, that they may be one even as we are one, I in them and thou in me, that they may be made perfect in one, and that the world may know that thou hast sent me and hast loved them as thou hast loved me. Whoa, take that last line and realize that the context of it is speaking not just of the disciples. It is speaking of those that will believe in the word of the disciples. That's us. And it actually says that we would know that our God has loved us the same way he loved his son. Okay, did did God love his son? Yes. I think most of us could grasp that, that the father loves Jesus. And with the same love that he has for Jesus, he has that same love for you. You are one that has believed in the word that was given by the disciples. In Romans 5, it says, And hope maketh not ashamed, because the love of God is shed abroad in our hearts by the Holy Ghost which is given unto us. And then I, I went fast forward to 8, uh, verse 8. God commendeth his love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. The love of God is shed abroad in our hearts. If you don't know the love of God being shed abroad in your heart, go after it. Because this is something that is a basic package in Christianity. That you would know the love of God being shed forth in your heart. And it's not just for you so that you feel loved. It's not the end game of Christianity. It's so that all others would know they're loved by God. That that great love that God is talking about, that he had for his son, would flow through you like a channel. First, that you know that you're an object of his love. But then you would be a channel of his love outward. And the Father heart of God would be expressed on earth. That those orphans that are praying all over the earth, and they're saying, God, do you care? Do you love me? Do you see my need? That you would rise up and be a channel of that love and come up to them and says, yes, your Father hears your prayer. Yes, he loves you. And you demonstrate, you become the hands and the feet of that love to the dying, to the weak, to the lonely, to the oppressed, to the enslaved. Does the Father love them? Your answer is yes, through us as the church. That's the privilege of adoption. We're recipients and then we're givers. Two, it's a deliverance from bondage. So in Galatians 4, it says, even so we, when we were children, were in bondage under the elements of the world. Remember how it said earlier that we were under the spirit of bondage again to fear? No, we're under the spirit of adoption. And so when we were children, we were in bondage under the elements of the world. But when the fullness of the time was come, God sent forth his son made of a woman, made under the law, to redeem them that were under the law, that we might receive the adoption of sons. And because you are sons, God has sent forth the spirit of his son into your hearts, crying, Abba, Father. Some of you have heard this before, but it's worth repeating. And the word Abba 
comes from the Hebrew word that is most understood, which is ab, which is the first word in the Hebrew language. It's the beginning word. It's the foundation word upon which all the language builds because it's the nature of God. It's a father. Ab means father. Abba is the most intimate way of saying the name father. Papa, daddy. This is intimacy. God's not just saying, I threw a spirit of the father inside of you. We're like, oh, thanks. This is an intimate statement to say it cries out and says, you are actually my father. I belong to you. You will provide for me. You will protect me. I see it. I'm no longer under the spirit of bondage to fear, but I have the spirit of adoption within me, and it's crying out, you are my father. You are my daddy. You are my papa. This is a grace of adoption. This is what God does in us as believers. If you haven't recognized this, go after it. It's in the throne room of grace, in the treasure chest. Wrap yourself in the cloak of his blood. Come into his presence and say, God, I, I need that, that, that adoption. I need that love to be shed abroad in my heart. I need to know that I'm your son. I need to know that I'm your daughter. Please, could you reveal this to me? Because you say that this is what happens when I come to you. Wherefore thou art no more a servant but a son. And if a son, then an heir of God through Christ. Stand fast, therefore, in the liberty wherewith Christ hath made us free, and be not entangled again with the yoke of bondage. There's that statement, bondage in the context here, because this is at the very beginning of Galatians 5. Usually we read and we stop at the end of Galatians 4. But at the very beginning of Galatians 5, after it's talking, the context is talking about adoption. And its statement is, so, Christ has made us free through this adoption. Remember what Moses he was born into slavery, but through adoption, there was a legal transfer into a free man. And that's exactly what we have. We have a legal transaction before the heavenlies, and the enemy no longer has power over our life. He no longer can say, you're a slave to sin, because we're not. We're sons of the God Most High. We are owned by him, and we are his sons. That is a statement of fact that you can stick in the enemy's face. It is a fact and is a legal transaction. You do not need to be pushed around by your old father. Your old father has no legal hold on you from this moment forward. When you come to Jesus Christ and say, take me. Take me as your son. Rescue me from the spirit of bondage. And he does. Three, you're recipients of the great and precious promises. Okay, now, remember Paul said uh, that the Jews have the adoption, and then he went through this entire list. You know that everything under that list, let me go back to that list real quick. I know I'm having to climb back in. Here it is. The adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the service of God, the promises, the fathers, the race of the incarnation. I want you to realize the only reason that numbers two through eight even exist is because they were adopted. They're the result of the adoption. They were grafted into God. And as a result, they had the glory in their midst. They had the covenant with God. The interaction between father, son. He negotiated with them. He made a covenant in blood. The giving of the law, the services of God, the promises. And the promises are on the list. The Jews had the promises. Read Deuteronomy. And you'll see some of the most robust promises ever. And you'll say, oh, look at those. But those belong to the Jews. All right. Wait, wait till you see this. Recipients of the great and precious promises. 
Grace and peace be multiplied, it says in 2 Peter 1. Unto you, through the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord, according as his divine power hath given unto us all things that pertain unto life and godliness. If we just stop there, that would be good. But he has given us all things that pertain to life and godliness. You know, that covers everything. You have a life to live here. And you know that you are up against all the assaults of the enemy, all the natural powers of this earth and hell, and they all want to stop you. And yet you are called to life and godliness, to live it well, to showcase Jesus Christ. How in the world are you supposed to do this? Everything that pertains to it, everything that is necessary for the journey has been made available to you. Everything. Just because you haven't experienced that doesn't mean that's not true. It's a fact of the kingdom of heaven, and you have legal access to it because you are adopted. Through the knowledge of him that hath called us to glory and virtue, whereby are given unto us exceeding great and precious promises. No longer is it just the Jews that have the great and precious promises. It says we have exceeding great and precious promises that are given to us as the sons and daughters of the king, that by these ye might be partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. Number four. Well, this is a doozy here. One of the graces of adoption is that you can be indwelt by the very presence of Almighty God. You can be a house for the very spirit of God, the very life of God. Romans 8, for ye have not received the spirit of bondage again to fear, but ye have received the spirit of adoption, whereby we cry, Abba, Father. The spirit itself beareth witness that our spirit, with our spirit, that we are the children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ. If so, that be that we suffer with him, that we may also be glorified together. For I reckon that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. For the earnest expectation of the creature waiteth for the manifestation of the sons of God. For the creature was made subject to vanity, not willingly, but by reason of him who hath subjected the same in hope. Because the creature itself also shall be delivered from the bondage of corruption into the glorious liberty of the children of God. We are preserved, protected, and provided for. Luke 12 says, Consider the lilies, how they grow. They toil not, they spin not. And yet I say unto you that Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. If then God so clothed the grass which is today in the field and tomorrow is cast into the oven, how much more will he clothe you, O ye of little faith? And seek not ye what ye shall eat. Remember, this is a father speaking. This is a father speaking to those who are adopted. Seek not what ye shall eat or what ye shall drink, neither be ye doubtful of doubtful mind. For all these things do the nations of the world seek after. The unadopted seek after these things. They don't have the assurance in their life that someone other than them can take care of these things. But I'm telling you, you are not your own. You've been bought with a price. You belong to the God Most High. He is a father to you. And just as a little child is taken care of by an earthly parent, so are we as little children in the kingdom taken care of by our heavenly Father. For all these things do the nations of the world seek after, and your Father knows that ye have need of these things. But rather seek you the kingdom of God, and all these things shall be added unto you. Fear not, little flock. I love this line, by the way. Fear not, little flock. I love being called a little flock. We try and act all mature and old, And God says, yeah, you're a little kid that's crying out, Abba. 
And then, you know, we try and get past the Abba. It's like, yeah, well, Father. And then he says, little flock. Little flock. I'm a little sheep. You know, it's just this little uh, uh, woolly thing. Fear not, little flock, for it is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Fear not. Remember, have you seen this concept of no fear? Associate with the Father. There is no bondage again to fear. None of it. Fear not, little flock. For it is your Father's good pleasure. It's not like just his legal obligation, which we could say it is his legal obligation because he is our adopted Father and he is legally obligated. But it doesn't need to come to that. We don't need to bring our God to a court of law and say, God, you have to do this because of the legal terms. It is his good pleasure to give you the kingdom, all that is his, all the power, all the authority, all the might, all the joy, all the peace, all the love, everything that is in that kingdom, it is his good pleasure as your father to give it to you. I will not leave you comfortless. I will come to you. The word comfortless is based on the word parakletos. I will not leave you without a helper, without an enabler, without an intercessor. I will not leave you vulnerable to all the powers of earth and hell. I will come to you. That's your father, the voice of your father speaking through Jesus to you, the revelation of the father heart of God to us. I will not leave you vulnerable. Trust me. I will come to you. I will send my parakletos. That's the very context for the parakletos, the Holy Spirit being mentioned. And the word parakletos is the helper, the enabler, the protector, the one who fights the battle for us. He will come. You are not vulnerable. Just because I am going to be with the Father, I'm not going to leave you helpless and orphans. I'm going to send forth the Spirit of the Father to you. And you will know, it'll be a seal upon your heart, and you will know that you are grafted in, and you will know that you are protected, provided for, and shielded by the living God. Blessed be God, even the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort. That's the same word, paraclete. It's a, it's a rendition of parakletos, the God of all help, the God of all advocacy, the God of all rescue, who rescues, comforteth, us in all our tribulation, that we may be able to comfort them which are in any trouble by the comfort wherewith we ourselves are comforted of God. That word is the parakletos word. God sends forth his rescuer, his helper to us. And he says, so by the same power of the spirit within you, you will be able to be a parakletos and a rescuer and a helper to this world around you. God's end game isn't to just wrap you up in his arms and squeeze you and love you. It's to love you and then send you forth to love. God wants to use you as a mechanism of bringing love to this earth, bringing his gospel truth, being a mini parakletos unto the bigger parakletos, which is the Holy Spirit. You are a helper to the helper. Number six, with another grace of adoption, is the privilege to be disciplined and trained in righteousness. Now, I purposely put the privilege there just in case you would have a thought that says, well, this isn't much of a grace. To be disciplined and trained in righteousness. There is nothing in this natural world that will help you in the direction of God. There is nothing in this natural world which will progress you and mature you in faith. There is nothing in this natural world which will train you how to be a house for the living God properly. 
There is nothing in this natural world that will purge junk out of your life and get all those impediments out of your soul. But you have a father that is committed to you. And he says, it is, it is my good pleasure to give you the kingdom. And when that kingdom comes, everything that is not of that kingdom goes. And he disciplines his children. Why? Because he loves them and he wants to save them from the foolishness of their souls. The rod applied to the backside removes the foolishness from the heart of a little child. And that's what he brings. He brings his word to your backside. And out flows the foolishness. And it gets out. It's ejected out of the system so that you can be a proper carrier for the presence of God and live a life worthy of the calling you've received. So in Hebrews 12, it says, And ye have forgotten the exhortation which speaketh unto us, unto you as unto children. My son, despise not the chastening of the Lord, nor faint when thou art rebuked of him. For whom the Lord loves, he chastens, and scourges every son whom he receives. If ye endure chastening, God deals with you as with sons. For what son is he whom the father chastens not? But if ye be without chastisement, whereof all are partakers, then are ye then are ye, what, that isn't, then are ye are illegitimate? Something's not right with that, and not sons. Furthermore, we have had fathers of our flesh which corrected us, and we, have, we gave them reverence. Shall we not much rather be in subjection unto the father of spirits and live? You are illegitimate if you're not disciplined by the father. If you say, well, I've never disciplined by God, then you're an illegitimate, it says, Every true son is a partaker of the discipline of the Holy Spirit. And he will chastise. He will remove the flesh. He will say, this needs to go. He's gentle. He is perfectly fatherly in his way with us. He knows how to take care of his sons and daughters and drive us unto himself. Okay, the seventh grace. We get to the privilege of being heirs of the kingdom. If you have never pondered this, this is so majestic and magnificent. There is a kingdom. It will rule over all other kingdoms. The king of that kingdom is Jesus Christ. And all nations will pay tribute to him. And to be an heir of a kingdom means you are given the privilege within that kingdom of sharing in all the benefits, in all the glory, in all the wealth. All of it is available to us. Why us? Because we are children. It's available to the children. The pedigree of the king is given to us. Just as the bloodline, the sons and daughters of a king are able to have a sense of that rulership. They rule and reign along with their king. We too have the same privilege. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ. If so be that we suffer with him, that we may also be, that we be also glorified together. Hearken, my beloved brethren, hath not God chosen the poor of this world, rich in faith, and heirs of the kingdom which he hath promised to them that love him? The Roman custom for adoption was called adoptio, which obviously is where we get our word from. Paul, when he's speaking of adoption obviously was a Roman citizen. And what, he what is described as the Roman custom is strangely and eerily similar to what we see the pattern of in Scripture. It's really amazing. 
So you even see the brilliance of God in setting this culture in which the Jewish nation was. Paul was a Roman citizen. And then these concepts come up. Listen to this custom that they had. In Rome, at the time of Paul, there was unique understanding to the idea of fatherly authority. It was called patria potestas, which was a son, by which a son was held in his father's power almost as a slave was owned by his master. You are under patria potestas. You have no right of your own to live on your own. You have to come to your father for everything. Remember how Jesus lived? He only spoke that which his father was speaking. He only did that which his father was doing. Patria potestas. It's actually the concept of the Christ life in a strange way. I'm not trying to glorify the Roman culture, but I'm saying that's incredible. Patria potestas is a great way of saying it. He was held as a slave to the master's will, or in this case, the father's will. But it's a love bond. It's a bond-servant connection where the bond-servant is set free. He was a slave, but he was set free. And instead of going on his own way, he says, I love my master. And so I willingly, of my soul, come to him and submit and say, rule me. And they pierce his ear, which is a statement of obedience. Whatever the master, in this case, the father would say, Patria potestis, absolute authority. What the father says, the son submits to. That's our life. We are grafted in through adoptio into the kingdom of heaven. And the patria potestis of our God is exerted through his spirit, the spirit of the father crying, Abba, rule me. Tell me what to do. The words I speak will be your words. The deeds I do will be your deeds. My life is not my own. I'm bought with a price. So almost as a slave was owned by his master, this thusly gave a peculiar character to the process of adoption, which was transacted as a person was transferred from his natural father's power into that of his adoptive father. And it consisted in a fictitious sale of the son and his surrender by the natural father to the adoptive father. A sale of the son. Remember, we were bought with a price. This was a transaction of blood. We were redeemed with blood. It wasn't a fictitious sale. It was a non-fictitious sale, a very real sale. And we, there was a transaction, and we were gained for the kingdom. We were bought with a price. And his surrender by the natural father to the adoptive father. There's a surrender. Satan was stripped clean. He had to give up. There was death. He had no more legal hold. There was a surrender. And we were transferred unto a new father. From natural father to adoptive father, since I've covered this uh, well enough up to this point, I'm just going to leave it at that. Because I, th- I did have a scripture about you guys being, uh, being your, your father being the devil. Uh, that you Remember I was saying I'm doing one lighthearted message here, so instead of whipping that one out and having you all go, oh, no. Uh, let's emphasize today that our father is King Jesus, is Almighty God, is Jehovah. We have a father that is unlike any father. Any father you have down here on earth pales next to the father heart of our God in heaven. So let's progress. Oh, we lost our uh, keynote. Ah, there we are. Proofs of our kinship. I, what's the next one here? Okay, this is good. Deuteronomy 32.5. They have corrupted themselves. Their spot is not the spot of his children. They are a perverse and crooked generation, which sounds like the book of Philippians, by the way. This is in Deuteronomy. What we see here is there's a spot or an emblem or a proof of being a child of God. And look what it says. It says their spot, meaning their proof or their evidence, is not the evidence of his children. 
There is an evidence. There is a spot that is supposed to mark us as children of God. So the name of this little subsection was proofs, proofs of our sonship, proofs of our kinship, that we're related, that there is a connection. When you're talking to the enemy, and he says, by what authority? And you say, by the authority of the name of Jesus Christ, who is my father, I speak. In the authority of that name, as one of his children, you have no legal rights. The spirit of bondage no longer has control over me. You have an evidence of kinship, an evidence of the fact that you are a child. In the, let me see if I, yeah, the Gilmore Baronetcy and the great estate of Dulwich. There's a story of a, a young boy named William Gilmore. His father was, uh, no one really knew his heritage, but he played a violin, sort of like a traveling minstrel. He was a very depressed man, and he wandered into a fishing village, and he had a little three-year-old boy. And the, the little minstrel, you know, the violin-playing guy, never said anything to anyone about who he was, what he did, and he died and left a three-year-old boy. And that three-year-old boy then was handed over to a fisherman and his wife, and he was raised as a fisherman, which is, by the way, the lowest class in all of England at the time, because this is back in the 1770s. And so he was raised as a common fisherman. But one of the, you know, the, the parish, uh, uh, par- the parish, the parishioner's daughter took fancy in him, not attractive fancy, but interest in him, and she actually trained him, gave him an education. Well, this boy went on to accomplish some of the most extraordinary deeds in the Royal Navy in England back in the uh, late 1700s. And come to find out, he was actually, that his son, I'm sorry, his father was the son of a baronet named Ralph Gilmore. And so all these years later, the problem is he has no evidence to prove this. But he went on an exhaustive search to figure out his heritage. Where did he come from? And there was all these different clues that he had. And so he searched him out and found out that he was actually the son. And so he had to approach the baronet, which, by the way, is the third tier of authority in England. You have the king, and then you have barons. And barons are based on peerage, which is natural birth. Okay, that's bloodline birth. But a baronet could be a commoner raised up and because of exceptional living he is actually given that position by the king and then his descendants his firstborn would always inherit that as it progresses and so here he is he is the rightful heir to the baronetcy of the Gilmore family line but he has to have proofs of this to carry before the baronet and say see I am the son of your son and so he brought with him a seal with the armorial bearings that his dad had had on his finger He brought a looking glass that was found many years later through a lady, and they had run out of money. His dad had run out of money. That's why he became a pauper. He'd actually uh, given it to a lady, and he said, one day in the future, I'll redeem this from you. And so all those years later, he had died, and then in his searches, he found this lady, and then he had this looking glass. And this father recognized, of course, the armorial barons, and he also recognized the looking glass, which he had given to his uh, late mother. And the Amati violin was the violin that his dad had played. And he had that. And that was a gift from his father as well, Ralph Gilmore. And then he had a certificate of baptism that he found, a certified testimony of human witness. This one lady actually gave a certified testimony before a lawyer. And they submitted these things. These were the proofs of his baronetcy, that he was a descendant, that he was actually in line to inherit this. You try and come before the king of all kings and say, no, I deserve to be in your bloodline. 
On what terms? On by what merit? There is proofs that you can gain to stand in the spiritual realm and stand with assurance on a rock to say, I am actually a son or a daughter of the Most High King, which is beyond a baronetcy. A baronetcy is a really impressive thing. He got the entire estate of Dulwich, which is one of the, you thought Pemberley was nice. Dulwich is even better. This is an orphan kid from a fishing village. They gain the proofs of sonship and actually claim the baronetcy. Isn't there something that sounds a little familiar in that? This is the gospel at work. You don't deserve this. So don't take it lightly and say, oh yeah, well, you know, God's children just get to be heirs of the kingdom. Do you realize what that means? This is enormous. You have been adopted by the most high God to share in the wealth, the power, the majesty of his kingdom forever and ever and ever. And what you deserve is eternal separation and torment. That's what you deserve. You're an orphan from a fishing village. And you are being called up to the highest level. Appreciate it. Soak in it. Bathe in the realities of this. What is the proof of our kinship? It's two things is outlined in scripture, very specific. The blood of Jesus. Do you have the cloak of righteousness about your shoulders? When you get to the throne room of grace, you get to that judgment seat and everything's being parsed out. What divines those that are born of God, those that are of his bloodline, the blood, not yours, not your merit, his merit, what he accomplished. And you say, I stand here today, not on my own merit, but on the merit of Jesus Christ. His shed blood was sufficient for me and my salvation. That is what I appeal before the throne. As we come and they say, by what right do you have to come here? We say the right is only gained through the blood of Jesus Christ. He has right, and therefore I have been grafted into that because I believe it is by faith in the shed blood of Jesus Christ that I ask for access now. Having therefore, brethren, boldness to enter into the holiest by the blood of Jesus, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith. And this is the second one. So not just the blood of Jesus, but the seal of the Spirit. Christ Jesus, in him you also trusted, after you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom also, having believed, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. That Holy Spirit of promise, we've, re- we've referenced multiple times in this message. It's the Spirit of the Father being sent forth that cries out, Abba, Father. It is a seal upon the soul of a believer. They are covered in the blood of Jesus. Why? So that they can access the throne room of grace. What happens in the throne room of grace? They are sealed with the Spirit of God. The very presence of God enters into them and cries out, I have a Father in heaven. I am of royal lineage in the Davidic line. I share in it. This is the process of the gospel life. Clothed in Jesus. And then Jesus being clothed in us. You were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise, which is the earnest of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession unto the praise of his glory. It's the earnest of our inheritance. These are the two symbols, the blood and the seal of the Spirit. This is what you bring. Remember the, the, the virgins and they had their lamps? All 10 of them started out with oil. Five of them lost it. And when the bridegroom came, they weren't invited in. The seal of the Spirit. 
that you possess something. What is that something? It is the spirit given by the Father. The Father knows, just like Will Gilmore's looking glass or the Amati violin. It's like, I gave that to you. And you say, yes, you gave this to me. It's the spirit of the Father within me, and it says, you are my Father. He says, come on in. It is a very real and legal thing. It's a proof before the throne of heaven. Now, you can say, why in the world do we need this? This is our foundation upon which we stand and which we do battle. We know our heritage now. We are born of the Spirit of God. We are not on our own, hoping to one day gain access, hoping to find the favor of God, hoping to be a son or a daughter. We are a son and a daughter. This is an evidence, first and foremost, for us. It is a proof, it is an anchor within our soul that says, I am sure, I know of what I'm born. I know the bloodline, and I know that in the future, this is the merit by which I will enter into that kingdom and claim, if you will, the baronetcy. The amazing gospel. This is the list, the same list from Romans 9 that I mentioned that Paul said that the Jews have the adoption, they have the glory, the covenants, the giving to the law. I gave this list the other week when I gave the foreign mercenaries message. This is what we have. The Jews had the adoption. We have the adoption of sons. Same thing. But this is born of the Spirit. They had the glory. They had the temple of God and the very glory of God descend like a cloud and live amongst them. We have the hope of glory in our midst. We have Jesus Christ using us as his skin. We have glory indwelt. We have the hope of glory in the spirit of God, a mystery that has been hidden for ages and generations, but is now revealed unto the saints of God. We have not just the old covenant, we have the new covenant in his blood. We don't just have the law, we have the giving of the spirit. We don't just have the service of God, we have the great commission. We don't just have the promises out of Deuteronomy, we have the exceeding great and precious promises purchased on the cross of Jesus Christ. We don't just have the fathers, we don't say our father is Abraham, that's not our mere statement. We say we have access by one spirit unto the Father. That is our Father. We have the spirit of the Father crying out, Abba. And yes, we aren't the race by which Jesus Christ took on our skin. We aren't Jews necessarily. Some of you might be. But we aren't necessarily Jews and we're not the race of the incarnation. But the incarnation of Christ within is what we have. He is housed in our skin. What would you rather be? A descendant of the bloodline of the race? that had Jesus walk in their skin and you could say, I'm a Hebrew, or to say, Jesus is in my skin. You know what? I'll take the latter. This is good. This is great news. And this is the result of the adoption of sons. The eagle in the nest. I'm gonna finish with this. I I don't think, well, let me go down to the second part of it here. See, this is in Deuteronomy 32.4, by the way. And it says, right there, right in the middle, he found him in a desert land. Okay, this is speaking to the Jews, but let's imagine that it's you. And in the waste-howling wilderness, he led him about and he instructed him. He kept him as the apple of his eye, the very center. As an eagle stirs up her nest, fluttereth over her young, spreadeth abroad her wings, taketh them, beareth them on her wings, so the Lord alone did lead him. And there was no strange God with him. Let's just finish there and I'll I'll share this story. God likens himself to an eagle. And this picture in Deuteronomy is so 
fascinating and beautiful when you recognize his heart and you recognize what you've been included into. First of all, the eagle's nest is the most magnificent of any bird. It's the mansion of all bird nests. And it's usually built on high. Why? So that predators can't access it. It's safe. It's secure for little baby eaglet. Every bird would wish to be the son or the daughter of an eagle. This is good stuff. But only the eagles have it. So those grafted into this bloodline of the Jewish nation actually become eaglets. We are given this incredible fortress about us in a high rock, protected from everything, every predator that could attempt to come after us. There is security. But what it says about the eagle is that it hovers over the nest, which is a little strange. And by the way, if you know what hovering means, it means to move a bird moving its wings fast enough where it can stay in a stationary spot over something. Imagine an eagle doing that. An eagle hovering. You want to know what kind of wind current would be created? <laughs> okay, and he does this, or she does this, right over the nest. Right before she does this, actually there's one line in there I forgot. It says she stirs up the nest. So what mother eagle, eagle does at one point in time, when baby eaglet is ready, is mother eaglet starts messing up the nest. She creates this perfect, downy, soft, comfortable thing, you know, with feather and everything, and everything's wonderful for baby eaglet. She's adopted in. And suddenly, mother starts messing up the nest. So all these pinions are sticking out instead of laying down, and Eaglet can't get comfortable. It's just totally miserable. And so Eaglet's like, hey, what's going on here, mom? And then mom, instead of answering, starts hovering. So baby Eaglet's plastered to the pinions. What's happening in this exact moment in, in, the, in the description of how an eagle physiologically works is an, eagle, an eaglet can't fly until something happens. Their, their wings need to be lubricated. There's an oil beneath their, uh, well, I was going to say armpit. That's an ugly word, though. But when they, feel, when they show resistance against the, the, uh, the hovering of, the, of a mother eagle, it actually creates, first of all, enough strength in their muscular development to eventually fly, and it releases that oil, which lubricates their wings. Little eaglet doesn't know what's happening. Little eaglet is only looking at this as a disaster area. I don't know that I want Mother Eagle as my mother. And how many of us say that when we come into the kingdom of heaven? Oh, we're freed from the bondage of fear. Thank you, Jesus. And then suddenly he messes up our nest. What? And then suddenly he starts hovering. What? We have no idea that something is being strengthened because there's a bigger end game. God isn't interested in us just living in a castle. He wants to make us strong so that we can fly as he flies. So that we can actually demonstrate the image of the creator here on earth. That we can show forth the father heart and not just receive the father love. But we can pour out the father love. Okay, so if Mother Eagle hasn't looked like she's gone insane already. Then what she does is she, I don't know how she does it. But I picture it with the beak. Sort of knocking baby eaglet to the side of the nest and then boom, knocking around. Now remember this is like up in a high cliff, high tree. So baby eaglet's like. And Mother Eagle flies down. Catches baby eaglet, takes her back up to the nest. So baby eaglet's like, okay, I thought I was dead, but for some reason I have a second life, but this nest still stinks. It's a very uncomfortable. What's going on here? Mother eagle keeps knocking baby eaglet out of the nest. Time and time and time again. Finally, baby eaglet begins to think, you know what? Mother seems to know how to use these things. And little baby eaglet begins to practice. Over and over and over again, this cycle goes until, of course, little baby eaglet learns how to fly. 
Now, one of the most amazing things about an eagle is it has strength in its wings to, to fly through storms and above them, which means there can be a storm going on in this earth, and that eagle can be in the midst of a storm, but above it. So that, yes, there's a storm. How many of you have had storms in your life? But most of us are under the storms as opposed to over. But an eagle has a triumphant flight. It is able to rise above the situation. In the training of a baby eaglet, now I can't prove this, okay? This is one of those lines that may be exaggerated, but as of right now, no one has ever said anything to the contrary. Okay, and I've shared about the baby eaglet for years of my life. This is what someone told me years and years and years ago. Never in all of history has a baby eaglet been found dead on the ground. Isn't that good? Can't prove it. But still, it's a truth of heaven. Whether or not it's a truth of nature, it's a truth of heaven. God will train you, and it's a privilege. You come to him as your father, and he will do the work in you that only a father can do because he loves you. And some of that work may be misconstrued as not healthy, not appropriate, judgmental, difficult, uh, condemning, you know, all these words that we get for it. But our God is moved out of love for his children to see us succeed, to strengthen our wings so that we can rise above the storms and to fly like the living God and to demonstrate that, yes, our God is God because we are showing the very attributes of his nature. We are showing the very behavior patterns on earth that Jesus also did you were born of God, aren't you? Yes, he is my father. We have a father. And this is good news. This is the miracle of adoption. You take it for yourself and you begin to be a flow through for that love to this world around you. And at the same time, I want you to bear the father heart. And I want you to realize that as the church of Jesus Christ, there are those that need to see the expression of the father heart of God and answer to their pleas and their cries. And we as the church of Jesus Christ need to turn outside of ourselves and not allow the natural barriers of what adoption would mean to us or the fears that are associated with it, but that we would allow the spirit of the Father to cry out in us and that we would go out and be rescuers and extensions of his Father nature to all those that don't have the privilege of having a Father. This is the church of Jesus Christ. This is how it works. This is how it's always worked. So let's let it work that way in our generation again. Let's pray. Thank you for listening to this message by Eric Ludy, pastor at the church at Ellerslie in Windsor, Colorado. Please feel free to make copies of this message, but do not charge for these copies or alter their content in any way without express written permission. More information can be found on our website, www.ellerslie.com. Again, that website is www.ellerslie.com. Know that we are cheering you on as Christ cultivates his set-apart life within you.